We're going to look at Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 through 3 this morning. Begin a study through the book of Ephesians, a study that will probably um, encompass, uh, you know, several months. It's a great book. Um, one that I encourage you uh, at some point, uh, maybe this week if you have time, to uh, sit down and read in its entirety all the way through. It'll probably take you 20 minutes to a half an hour. Um, to <laughs> it's kind of an inside joke. Uh, never mind. One time I told Sean Jones and Kevin Vaughn that they could read Re- Revelation in less than an hour, and so you know that's it's an old joke. So anyway, um, but I promise you, you can read Ephesians in less than a half an hour if you sit down and read it. Um, so I think what it'll do for you is it'll give you just a really cool uh, picture of of all that Paul is trying to communicate. Uh, as he writes this letter. So why don't we open in prayer and we'll launch into our study. Father, we thank you uh, for this time to open your word, Lord. We thank you for your word, Lord. And as Jeremiah said, Lord, we pray that uh, your words would be found this morning, that we would consume them, Lord, and that they would become the joy and the rejoicing of our heart. Lord, we thank you that your word is, is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And Lord, may your word be illuminated to us this morning. May your Holy Spirit open our eyes that we might see, our ears that we might hear, our hearts that we might receive. And may these truths go down and produce fruit in our life. In Jesus' name, amen. For many years, Hetty Green was called America's greatest miser. When she died in 1916, she left an estate valued at $100 million, which was a vast fortune for that time. She was so miserly that she ate cold oatmeal in order to save the expense of heating the water. When her son had a severe leg injury, she took so long trying to find a free clinic to treat him that his leg had to be amputated because of the advanced infection. It has been said that she hastened her own death by bringing on a fit of epilepsy while arguing the merits of skim milk because it was cheaper than whole milk. And this story really illustrates the point that is at the heart of the book of Ephesians. As believers, as those of us who have put our faith in Jesus Christ, we have been given a vast amount of spiritual wealth. And yet oftentimes, I think if we're honest with ourselves, we live as though we're flat broke. Like the children of Israel, we wander aimlessly through this life, failing to enter into all that God has for us. God said, look, here it is. Here's the land. I've given it to you. And they just said, no, there's giants there. It's scary. No, thank you. And how often do we turn from what God has revealed to us? He says, look, this is what I've given to you. This is what is At your disposal, I've given you all things for a life of godliness. And how often do we just sort of thumb our nose at that and walk away from it and never enter into those things? And Ephesians is very easy to break down. There are six chapters. The first three are doctrinal. They deal with all that God has done for us. The last three are practical and they focus upon our response to what God has done. And that's how... The Word of God is always set up. It always shows us first what God has done, and then what we do as a response. Just as the Bible says, we love God because He first loved us. 
and we always are the responders. He's the initiator. And so Paul sets up the book of Ephesians in just that order. First, he tells us all that God has done. And then he says, okay, in light of that, here's what you should do. But if we ever get that out of order, if we ever put the cart before the horse, man, we get burnt out. We think this is too hard. This is difficult. I can't do it. I want to give up. Let's throw in the towel. Because I become the initiator. I become the one that's trying to relate to God by all of these things, and I can't do it. But if we realize, wait, He's done it all. The work has been finished. He's told me that I have a vast amount of spiritual blessings at my disposal, and now I just walk in those things. Man, it makes it 100% different. If you like outlines, you can outline the book of Ephesians, chapters 1 through 3. Paul speaks of our wealth. Chapters 4 through the ninth verse of chapter 6, Paul speaks of our walk. And then verses 10 through 24 in chapter 6, Paul speaks of our warfare, our our wealth, our walk, and our warfare. Ephesians has been called the believer's checkbook. As this book tells us what we possess as Christians and how we can lay claim to those possessions. Now, many of us don't have a lot of possessions in our checking account to lay claim to. But we do have a vast amount of resources spiritually that we can take hold of. Ephesians speaks of the riches of His grace. Chapter 1, verse 7. It speaks of the unfathomable... How do you say that word? I struggled with it first service. The unfathomable riches of Christ. Chapter 3, verse 8. It speaks of the riches of His glory. Chapter 3, verse 16. And all of these blessings and all of these riches, we're told, are found in Christ. That phrase, in Christ, is used 15 times in the book of Ephesians. It's really one of the themes of the book that all of the blessings and all of the riches and all the things that we have at our disposal are in Christ. They're not in a church. They're not in a program. They're not in a religion. They're not found in some book or some seminar. You can't buy these things. They are in Christ in Him alone. And so the question is, are you in Christ? Have you placed your life in Christ? As Paul would say in Colossians, is your life now hidden in Christ? And our text this morning is chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. And I want us to notice four things as we make our way through these verses. First, we're going to see the author. Then we're going to see the recipients. Then we'll see the greeting and then the message of Ephesians. As Paul kind of lays out there in verse 3, the message, really the theme of the entire book. And so the author, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. This is a little foreign to us because we don't start letters like this anymore. I don't start a letter saying, Ryan, person would be like, that's not my name. You know, we, we started by saying, dear whoever we're writing to. But back in this time, they would start with their name. They would introduce themselves. And the Apostle Paul was very familiar to them. Of course, he planted this church in Ephesus. He led many of them to Christ. And so they knew Paul. His name had some authority. His name had some clout. And he's an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. And the question that I think we need to ask ourselves is, what are we by the will of God? Can we put our name in there 
and say, Ryan, a pastor, a teacher by the will of God, what is it that God has called us to? Now, maybe you spend the bulk of your time doing something other than what you are gifted at spiritually. Maybe you're a carpenter, or maybe you work in an office, or maybe you're a mechanic. But the thing is, is that you have been given gifts. You have been called by God to a certain task and a certain calling spiritually. And you ought to be able to say your name doing this thing by the will of God. Because that's the thing that you're passionate about. That's the thing that you're focused on. And it's, I think, really good to figure that out. And I think we're much more effective as believers if we use our life more like a bullet than a shotgun. Because so often we get spread out doing many things and we become pretty much ineffective in those things. Most of the BBs that are shot out of a shotgun do nothing, right? Maybe one or two ends up hitting that duck or that game bird. If it's me, none of them do and the bird just continues to go on its merry way, but most of those pellets end up just falling into the water or falling into the brush or hitting some stray other hunter over there, you know, in the head. Whatever the case might be, the other pellets pretty much are worthless. And I think a lot of our life is like that. We're so spread out that we're not doing anybody any good. And a bullet would be more effective. That one thing that you are focused on. And what is that thing? Maybe you say, I have no idea. I don't know what the will of God is for me. And here's the thing. I really believe that God has a general will for our life. It's given to us in the Word of God, and it's the same for each one of us. It's black and white. There's no question. It's not like, well, I don't know. Maybe He wants me to sleep with my girlfriend, or I don't know. Maybe He wants me to get high on drugs, or I don't know. Maybe He wants me to cheat on my taxes. No, there's none of that. There's no will of God in those areas. You know for certain God doesn't want you to do that or maybe you know for certain that God does want you to do other things and there's no question God wants you to be in his word he wants you to be in prayer he wants you to love people if you're married he wants you to love your wife or if you're a wife he wants you to to honor and submit to your husband these aren't these aren't questions these aren't things you have to pray about and they're the same for all of us but then we all struggle with what we might call the specific will of God. And that's like, well, who should I marry? What college should I go to? Um, you know, where should I work? What color should I paint my house? You know, and we just sort of fret over these things. And I don't know that God is so concerned about the specifics. Because what God wants is your heart. And when God has captured your heart, and when you love God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind and all of your strength, and in actuality, you can do whatever you want. Well, isn't that a license to sin? No. Because if you love God with all of your being, you're going to do what He wants you to do. You're going to be in His will. And so the first thing that you need to do so that you can have this be a sentence for your life, so that you can put your name in here, the first thing you need to do is be passionately, madly in love with Jesus. Have Him capture your heart. And then begin to step out and see how He wants to use your life. And pretty soon, you'll begin to see that God is using you very supernaturally in natural ways. It just will sort of be a part of your life. 
You'll just be going about your daily routine and God will begin to use you in the way that He's gifted you. And you'll begin to have that focus. But the first thing is fall madly in love with Jesus. Have Him be the passion of your life. Let Him capture your heart. And then His will, you guys, will just unfold for you. The Bible says, delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. And so that's the author. And then we see the recipients to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus. Paul first came to Ephesus on his second missionary journey. You can read about that short trip in Acts chapter 18. He stayed there just a few days. He went into the synagogue and he ministered to the people. And then he said, you know what, I've got to go. I've got to get to the feast in Jerusalem. And they begged him to stay, but he refused. And he said, I'll come back if the Lord wills. And two years later, he came back. And you can read about that in Acts 19. And he came back to Ephesus and he stayed there for two years. And he planted a church there. He led many people to Christ. He worked miracles, he created revival, and he created riot. In fact, the final riot that he created there, they basically threw him out of town because the city of Ephesus was a city that was bustling. It was wealthy. It was close to 400,000 people at that time, which was a metropolis. It was a city that was centered around the worship of the goddess Diana. Now, if you've ever seen the goddess Diana, she's a multi-breasted, weird-looking god that's basically the goddess of sex. And that's what they celebrated there. And you could go to the, the temple of Artemis, it was called, that was dedicated to Diana, and you could worship Diana by having sex with the temple prostitutes. And that's how they worshipped. And so it was... Not unlike Las Vegas, where people go and they celebrate and worship at the temple, at the altar of sex. And what stays, what happens in Ephesus stays in Ephesus. That was kind of their motto as well. And Paul was there, and he was ministering to people, and he was creating revival. But then all of a sudden, some of these men, these silversmiths, one by the name of Demetrius, who made his living making these little... Idols, these little figurines for the worship of Diana. He begins to see his prophets fading, getting smaller, and he says, you know what, this Paul guy's got to go. He's leading people to Christ. They're no longer worshiping Diana, so they're not buying my little figurines. They're not buying my idols. So he got the other silversmiths together, and he said, look, we've got to run this guy out of town, and that's what they did. But Paul was there for two years. He did amazing things there. And Paul says that this letter is written to the saints who are in Ephesus. This letter really isn't specific only to the church of Ephesus, though. Because he doesn't address any problems in the church. He doesn't name anybody by name. This letter is very general. And more than likely, it was a letter that was passed around a circuit of churches. And it's a letter that absolutely has application to us today as we read these things because Paul really lays out who we are as believers and who we are as members of the body of Christ. What we have as a result of that. To the saints who are in Ephesus and the faithful in Christ Jesus. And so what we see here is really the two-fold areas of salvation. The responsibility of God and the responsibility of man. 
He calls us saints. Now, a saint is not someone who has been canonized by a church. A saint is not someone whose name is written in a book. A saint is not somebody whose face is forever enshrined in a stained glass window. These aren't saints. Saints aren't people to worship. Saints are people that have placed their faith in Jesus, who have said, I need Jesus and have allowed him to come into their life. And hopefully that's all of us here this morning. If you've never done that, then you're not a saint, but you can be one. And all a saint is, is someone who's called apart, someone who's set apart, someone who is declared holy. In fact, Jesus tells us that he became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. He became sin for us, that we might become righteous in His sight, that we might have His holiness. So He took our sin and He gave us His holiness. And that's what makes us a saint, what makes us someone who is holy. And so that's God's responsibility. You can work as hard as you possibly can. You'll never be a saint in your own efforts. Only God can declare that for you. But then there's our responsibility, the faithful in Christ Jesus. See, He declares you a saint. He said, it's finished. He did that by pouring out His blood. But then He says, okay, now it's time for you to approach me by faith. And the Bible says in Hebrews 11, verse 6, that it is impossible to please God apart from faith. Not highly improbable, not unlikely, not, well, we'll see how it all works out in the end. It's impossible. You have to approach God by faith. And so he does the work of his grace, as he says in Ephesians 2.8, that we're saved by grace, but then it's through faith. And so through faith, you accept what he did. You say, I am going to put my faith in that. But that's nothing for us to boast about either. That's not a work. Some people want to tell us that that faith is a work. No, there's no works. We're not saved by works. In fact, Romans chapter 12 tells us that even the faith that we have has been given to us by God. That each one of us has been given a measure of faith. And so we take that faith that we've been given and we put it into practice. And so many are unwilling to do that. So many are unwilling to put the faith that God has given them into practice. And we've all been given faith. It's called general revelation. Romans chapter 1 tells us that God has made Himself known to each one of us. But we choose to reject Him. We choose to not believe in Him so often, so many people. The evidence is there. God's revealed Himself, but they refuse to use that faith. They refuse to put what they know to be true into practice because of pride, because of unbelief, because of the desire to be self-sufficient, many things. But our responsibility is to simply take the faith that we've been given and place it in Jesus. And it would be like if I said, look, outside there's a brand new whatever kind of vehicle you like. There's a brand new one out there for you. And the keys are in the ignition. You just have to get in it and, and claim it. The title's in your name. It's it's all been taken care of. And you don't believe it. You say, oh, that's just too good to be true. And you walk by it and you get in your clunker and you drive off. And, you know, the next day you drive by and you see it and it's still sitting there. And a year later you drive by and it's still sitting there. And, and that's what people do with salvation. All they have to do is get in. The work has been done, but there's that step where you have to receive the gift. 
Just like when you receive a gift at Christmas or on your birthday. You can't just receive the package and then set it on a shelf. You have to open it up and receive it and hopefully, you know, put it to use. Sad when you, you know, give somebody a shirt and, and then, you, you know, never see them wear it. You know, hey, what happened to that shirt? Oh, it's hanging in my closet, you know. What, hey, what happened to that, that thing I got you? Oh, you know, um, I took it back, you know. I re-gifted it to somebody else. Um, and so faithful in Christ Jesus, putting that thing that he's done for us into practice. That's our responsibility. And Paul goes on to talk about the greeting. He gives his standard greeting. He says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This was his standard greeting. It was really a compilation of the standard Hebrew greeting and the standard Greek greeting. The Greek person would say charis to you. We might say hello, they would say charis. It means grace. The, the Hebrew would say shalom. It means peace. And so Paul, being a Jew but being raised in Greek culture, kind of combines those two. And he says grace and peace. And grace is undeserved favor, having nothing to do with merit or effort on our part. It's getting what we don't deserve. Mercy, on the other hand, is not getting what we do deserve. You have to make a distinction between the two. God is merciful, but God is also gracious. And mercy is negative. It's not getting what you do deserve, which would be hell. But grace is positive. It's getting what you don't deserve, which would be heaven, eternal life. And I love to illustrate it like this. If you were driving like 100 miles an hour down the road, which, you know, I never speed, but if you just happen to do that, you know, maybe your wife's going into labor or, you know, I mean, other than that, we never speed, right? And you're speeding down the highway, you get pulled over and the officer comes up and he says, you know, um, I clocked you at 100 miles an hour, you know, the speed limit's only 55. Can I have your license and registration and proof of insurance? Sure, you know. Give him all that. He, he goes back to his car and he's there for a long time, which, you know, when they're there for a long time means you're going to get a ticket. Comes back and sure enough, he's got a ticket in his hand and he says, you know, this is a $500 fine, but I'm just, I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to rip this up. He rips it up, he throws it out into the highway and all the little pieces go floating off and you're just stoked. Oh man, this is great. You know, my insurance won't go up and, and he starts to walk off, and then he turns around and he says, you know, this would normally be a $500 fine, so here's a check for $500. The mercy would not be getting what you deserve, which was the fine. The grace would be getting what you don't deserve, which is the $500. And that's what God has done for us. And so grace, unmerited favor, getting what we don't deserve. And then he says peace, which is the result of grace. It's a fruit of the Spirit. And there's really two aspects of peace. There's peace with God, and there's the peace of God. And the peace with God is positional. It comes through Christ. It's something that you receive based on putting your faith in Jesus. You're no longer God's enemy. You've been given peace with Him because of what Jesus did on the cross. You see, as an unbeliever, it's not like you have this neutral standing with God where it's like, you know, well, he's not part of my family and I don't really know him, but it's all cool. That's not it at all. God says, you are my enemy. We are at enmity. My wrath is upon you. But if we place our faith in Jesus, who the Bible says took the wrath of God upon himself, the term is propitiation. Jesus took 
all the wrath that we deserved upon himself. And that's why he said on the cross, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It, that wasn't just some random phrase that came out of his mouth. He said that because at that moment, God the Father turned his back on him because he was pouring out his wrath and Jesus was becoming sin for us. And if we believe in that, we no longer are subject to God's wrath. We have peace with God. We become at peace with God. The term is reconciliation. We've been reconciled. But it's not only positional, it's practical. And we would call that the peace of God. And that comes and goes. You can relate to that, right? I mean, things are going well. You just feel all at rest. You're at peace. And then all of a sudden you get that phone call. All of a sudden you get that bill in the mail that you weren't expecting. All of a sudden you get that terrible news. All of a sudden something tragic happens and the peace of God is sucked out of you. Can you relate to that where you just almost can literally feel God's peace being just sucked right out of your life? And you know what? It, it happens. But you have to fight against that and you have to go to God in prayer. Philippians chapter 4. What does the Bible tell us? Be anxious for nothing but in everything with thanksgiving. How often do we do that? Lord, thank you that you've given me an opportunity to share the gospel with this guy that I just rear-ended. I would have never been able to see this guy otherwise. You know, Lord, I know that my house is on fire. Maybe I'll get to minister to the firemen. You know, it's like, how often do we think that? I know I don't very often, you know, but maybe we ought to have that perspective more and give thanks and instead of worrying and fretting, because like Jesus said, what good does it do? Can't add a cubit to your stature. I mean, I've been trying to add height to, to this frame for a long time. It doesn't work. You know, 16 years old, 5'8 was it. And I can worry all night long. And I can wish that I was 6'5 so that I could have played in the NBA. But it isn't going to happen. I'm 5'8", and that's what I'm going to be. So now I'm just adding to my frame in other ways. You know, it just... <laughs> figure can't add the height we'll add the width you know but you can't do anything by worrying how many of us just lay in bed and toss and turn and we're up all night and we're wasting our day worrying about stuff that really we can do nothing about the bible says just give it to me it says be anxious for nothing he doesn't say be anxious for you know only the big stuff he says be anxious for nothing but in everything, with thanksgiving, make your requests known to God. Well, he already knows them, doesn't he? Yeah, he already knows them, but he wants to hear it from you. He wants you to lay it at his feet. And then you begin to have that peace of God, which passes all understanding, flood your heart your mind. And so just as it was sucked out of you, it can be replenished. And you'll, you'll sense it. And it says it's past all understanding. Philippians chapter 4. It's past understanding. Because just the same as it was sucked out of you, now it is replenished and you have it again and you're just walking around and you're at peace and people say, how can you be at peace in this time? And you say, I don't know. It's past understanding, man. I don't have any idea. All I know is that I'm giving it to Jesus and when I feel those anxious moments coming on, I give it to Him again. And so there's peace with God. It's positional. Then there's the peace of God that's practical. And man, I hope you're living in those things. I, I hope that you have peace in your life. It's a result of God's grace. And then in verse 3, he gives us the message. He really gives us a backdrop for what the entire book of Ephesians will be about. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. That is an amazing verse. It tells us that we're rich in Christ, that we have everything we need for a life of godliness. How often do you hear people say, well, you know, this Christian life, it's so hard, it's so difficult. I mean, it's much harder now for our kids than it was when I was a kid and, you know, on and on and it's just so difficult and... And yet, the Bible tells us we've been given everything we need for a life of godliness. Not most things, but everything. And so there's no excuse. Just like when you tell your kids, you know, I've given you everything that you need to succeed in school. My dad used to say that, you know, I buy you books, I send you to school, what's the problem, you know? And it's like, Dad, you didn't buy any books, they're free, they're, they have them at the school there. Um, but, you know, we, we tell our kids, I've made everything available to you. But like the old adage, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. And the Lord can lay out all these things for us. He can say you're wealthy beyond anything that you could ever conceive of. I want to do more than you could ever imagine in your life. But we have to enter into that. And that's the message of Ephesians. And really, we need to distinguish in our mind earthly riches versus spiritual riches. Because often you hear it said that, you know, well, God wants you to be rich and God wants everybody to just have an easy life. And I've heard preachers say, you know, God wants everybody to drive a Rolls Royce. And and I, I always wondered, like, why are Rolls Royce? I don't like Rolls Royces. They look weird. You know, I'd rather have something else. Why does it have to be a Rolls Royce? But God's is almost like a sugar daddy, is what we are told. These things, as we talk about riches, you guys, have nothing to do with earthly riches. Now, earthly riches are fine, and Sean talked about that a couple Wednesdays ago, about, you know, making good investments and using your money wisely, and, you know, if you have money, then you might as well put it to good use, and there's nothing wrong with that. But that's not at all what we're talking about here. These are spiritual riches. And I think we get these things confused. And certainly, we think more about earthly riches than we do our spiritual riches. Most of us have probably been thinking about earthly riches as long as we can remember. I remember as a young kid, my goal in life was to be rich. just wanted to be rich. I didn't care how. I didn't care where. I just wanted to be rich. And I had all these aspirations. And that becomes the focus of our life. And, and we begin to, to envy these these rich people, the, the richest people in the world. Bill Gates, the richest man in the world. He's worth $56 billion. Warren Buffett, the second richest man in the world. He's worth $52 billion. He's closing the gap between him and Bill Gates. I think that's his goal. He buys every company you can imagine. Berkshire Hathaway owns just about everything you can think of. They own Geico. They own candy. They own vacuums. The guy just wants it all. He wants everything that he can get in this life. And, and, and then there's the, the Walton family. Five members of the Waltons are billionaires. At one time, they were all in the top ten wealthiest people in the world because their dad or whoever, however they're related to Sam Walton, started a store in Arkansas. I mean, who would have thought? Five billionaires in one family. You know, what do you think they talk about when they get together? You know, what do you do with your billions this week? You know, I mean, it's just crazy. And, and there's a prince from Saudi Arabia that's worth, you know, $30 billion. And I mean, it's there's these 
people and we look at them and Donald Trump and all the rest and we think, wow, to have that kind of money, that would be amazing. But we have spiritual riches beyond anything that you could ever conceive of. And so as we look at verse 3, I want us to see three things there quickly. The source of our riches, the scope of our riches, and the sphere of our riches. The source of our riches. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The source is not investments. It's not, you know, an inheritance from some dead family member. The source is God through Jesus Christ. That's where we receive these blessings. And you can't manufacture them. You know, Warren Buffett's out there, and I mean, he is considered to be the wisest investor. In, in fact, he and LeBron James, you know, the star basketball player from the Cleveland Cavaliers, they get together like on a weekly basis and they talk about how to invest. And they play one-on-one -on -one basketball. I don't think that's a real, you know, challenge for LeBron. In fact, they asked LeBron, who's better? Are you an better? Are you a better investor or is he a better basketball player? And he said, yeah, that goes without saying I'm a better investor. So he has it both. But we look at these people and we think, wow, I would want that. And I want those kinds of things for my life. And yet the things that we have available to us, you guys, they come from Jesus Christ and him alone. You can't manufacture them. It's not about being a good investor. It's not about anything earthly or worldly. It's simply about entering into the things that God has made available to you. And the source is Jesus Christ. These things are found in him. You can't manufacture them. You can't drum them up. And then the scope of our riches, he says, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. And so they aren't earthly blessings, they're spiritual blessings. You can't add them up. You can't go online and look at an account and say, this is how much I have. They're spiritual. But the awesome thing about it is that you also can never come to an end of them. No matter how many billions you have, you can spend it. There is a limit to it. But with the spiritual blessings we have, I mean, you go and you take out some grace, you take out some patience, you take out some goodness, some kindness, some gentleness, some faithfulness, some self-control, and it's still there. I mean, you take $100 out of my bank account, and you, I might have to, you know, put some coverage so I don't bounce a check, you know. But you take out the things out of the Lord's account, and it never runs dry. It's always there. You can never come to an end of it. But they're spiritual blessings. They're not earthly blessings. And he says, in the heavenly places in Christ. And so the sphere of our riches is that they're heavenly. They're not earthly. And so often our focus is so earthly that we are doing nothing when it comes to storing up our treasures in heaven. And we say we believe in eternity. We say, yeah, you know, one day I'm going to die and I'm going to go to heaven and it's going to be great. But are we really storing up our treasures in heaven? Or is our life totally focused on this earth? And like I said, there's nothing wrong with making earthly investments. If you have money and you can make some investments or you can buy a home instead of renting a home, I say go for it. Praise the Lord. That's great. Be a good steward. But if that's your total focus in life is amassing wealth and setting yourself up for retirement and doing all these things and you're investing only in this life, Man, that's sad because this life is like a vapor. And you're going to stand before the Lord and He's going to say, Wow, 
Your bank account's full. Too bad you can't use it. Wow, look at all those homes that you own. Too bad somebody else is going to be owning them now. Look at all those cars. Look at all that money. And you can't do anything with it. Where's our focus? So often we say, man, I wish I would have invested in that company. Or I wish I would have bought stock in that. You know, think of the companies that are, that are now just booming that you could have bought stock for for pennies on the dollar 30 years ago. Costco, Starbucks, Walmart. Think if you would have bought into those companies, you would be a very wealthy person. And you think, man, I missed it. I, I knew it. You know, I should have bought into that. You know, I should have bought into one of those energy drinks, you know. I knew those were going to be big. And, and we think about those things after the fact because everybody's a genius after the fact. But how much more... Are we going to stand before the Lord and feel really, really stupid that we didn't invest in things of the kingdom and that we missed it? Because just like now, you want to buy Starbucks? Well, yeah, it's, it's expensive now. You want to buy Costco? Well, so does everybody else. And guess what? You stand before the Lord and you think, man, I should have invested in the kingdom. But it's too late. This is your opportunity. So don't say, well, I believe in, in eternity. I believe in heaven. I believe that I'm going to spend an unending amount of time with the Lord and yet not do anything to back that up. Where, where's our focus today? If it's totally earthly, we're going we're gonna to regret it. I can guarantee you that. And here's the thing. There's lots of ways that we can invest from an earthly perspective. There's lots of things you can invest in. But the only thing that you can take with you to invest in the kingdom is people. God made it simple. He doesn't say you got to diversify your stocks. He doesn't say you got to go see, you know, some kind of a broker. He just says make investments in people. And we all do that in different ways. But that is the only thing that you can take with you. And so what kind of investments are you making in people? There's no such thing as a hermit Christian. There's no such thing as a Christian who says, I don't like people. Read the book of 1 John. If you love God, then you'll love people. And you've got to begin to make investments in people's lives. Now, the way you do it and the way I do it will be different. But you have something to offer. You have something you can give. And you can begin to make investments in people's lives. And you can begin to tap in to the spiritual blessings that are at your disposal. Let's stand and pray together. Stuart will close us in song.